welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to do a March IFRIC update. Hopefully the viewers aren't listening in like August. <laughs> We've got it out a bit on time and I'm joined by our uh, global technical partner, Mr. Tony DeBell, who also sits on IFRIC. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. And March. Oh my word, it was a packed agenda. It was. You must have been solid in there without leaving for two days. We're going to take two days and we're going to cram it into 20 minutes. Can you Good. do that? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise just we might lose the viewers for I think we'll just about manage it. <laughs> I keep saying viewers, they obviously can't hear us. Listeners. Okay, so let's start. Before we get into the detailed agenda, and um, there was an overall discussion around when gender decisions become applicable. So do you want to start with that and then we'll get into the details? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I, this was probably a good meeting to have this discussion because uh, we finalised uh, and issued eight agenda decisions uh, as, as, a result of, as a result of this meeting. Uh, and the thing with an agenda decision is that it is not uh, an authoritative part of the hierarchy of IFRS literature. It is, however, something that provides persuasive information that management ought to think about when it's developing an accounting policy, particularly in, in an area where there isn't any absolutely specific guidance. And so there's always been a question around when an agenda decision ought to be applied or when management ought to take into account the contents of an agenda decision when it's developing an accounting policy. And this is something that the ISB has been thinking about. Yeah. Uh, and it proposed something in an amendment to IAS 8, now, that uh, amendment is not yet finalised, but uh, the IASB has um, reconfirmed its conclusion. And so this was something that we talked about as a committee uh, at the meeting last week. And we decided that it would be helpful to summarise the IASB's conclusion in IFRIC update ahead of all of the agenda decisions. And so what we've summarised is, is the ISB's conclusion that an agenda decision will sometimes result in explanatory material that provides new information or information that wasn't available before. And that information uh, informs management as it makes a decision about an accounting policy. However, it's important that management has sufficient time to be able to think about what's in the agenda decision and maybe amend its systems or data gathering processes in order to be able to apply whatever the new policy is. And so it's that little piece that will be clarified in IFRIC update. Okay, is that just this IFRIC update or they'll just put it in until the board's amendment goes through? I think this is something that will appear consistently okay. in IFRIC update uh, just to confirm that management should be allowed sufficient time yeah. to be able to apply the thinking in an agenda decision. Yeah, you emphasised a word there, so I'm obviously going to pick up on it, Tony. <laughs> what is sufficient time? There must be a nice definition somewhere. Uh, it's not something that is going to be defined. Uh, uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to vary from one agenda decision to another. There is obviously a thought process. If management is going to make a voluntary change in accounting policy in response to the information that's contained in an agenda decision, then uh, management will need time to think it through, conclude on what the accounting policy is. And in some cases, there will be a need to have a think about the systems or the processes for, for gathering the data. And so the decision around what is sufficient is going to be a judgment that's going to reflect the circumstances of each change in policy. 
Okay. Okay. So lots of judgment there and think about it on each different agenda decision. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll start with the actual agenda decisions. We'll come back to tentative later. Yeah. Now that like you said, there were eight. We don't have time, unfortunately, to do eight. So I'm going to pick some, maybe not quite a random, but almost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, going to one of the, the topics you spoke about first, there was something to do with um, borrowing costs and construction within real estate. So you could tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so so we had a question uh, last year, in fact, was the, was the first time that, that we talked about this issue. And a company that applies IFRS 15 in connection with residential real estate might end up concluding that it gets to recognise revenue over time. So applying the criteria in IFRS 15, it gets to recognise revenue over time. Now, the thing about building residential real estate, so an apartment block, is that some of the units will be subject to contracts with customers while construction is going on, and therefore IFRS 15 will be applied, revenue will be recognised over time. There might be some units, some apartments in that block, that have not yet been sold. And so revenue won't be recognised on those until there's a contract with a customer. Yeah. But the construction costs will be accumulated as inventory. And the question was, um, in that fact pattern, so there's uh, an apartment block being built, uh, management is looking to pre-sell the units, and when it does, there will be a contract that supports the recognition of revenue over time. Uh, is there a qualifying asset in the context of IS23 on which interest borrowing costs can be capitalised. Okay, so you borrowed a loan to do the construction, can yeah. you capitalise it? Okay. Okay. And so the committee thought about the, the, the three possible assets that would arise in this situation. So firstly, there might be a receivable. So for the units that um, are subject to contracts with customers, then some work has been done and maybe the entity has the right to issue an invoice or has issued an invoice to the customer, there'll be a receivable. And the committee concluded that IS23 says financial assets are not qualifying assets, so the receivable is not a qualifying asset. Because revenue is being recognised over time, there might also be a contract asset under IFRS 15. So work's been done, revenue's been recognised, but at this stage, there's not an unconditional right to cash. That's a contract asset. So the committee thought about a contract asset and concluded that, well, the reason for holding a contract asset is not that it takes time to get ready for its intended use. Yeah. It's ready for its intended use, which is to become a receivable in due course. Yeah. And therefore, a contract asset is not a qualifying asset. And then finally, we talked about the inventory of uh, construction costs for units that are not yet subject to contracts with customers. And here the committee concluded, well, those units uh, don't take a significant amount of time or those construction costs don't take a significant amount of time to be ready for their intended sale because they're ready for their intended sale. If a customer were to come in tomorrow, purchase one of those units, the inventory would be in cost of sales. So the committee concluded that they are ready for their intended yeah. sale and therefore they don't meet the definition of qualifying asset. Okay, so quite a clear, clear agenda. It's quite a, quite a clear agenda decision. Uh, the, the impact is potentially significant because the conclusion is that the receivable contract asset uh, and the, the inventory of construction costs are not qualifying assets and therefore it would not be appropriate for interest to be capitalised. And I know like IS11 is feels long dead now, but would... Would people have capitalised it under IS11 back in the day? 
I think IS-11 was a different standard. And IS-11 mentioned interest as being one of the components of construction cost. But of course, IS-11 has been withdrawn. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't look past. We should focus on the future, Tony. Okay, perfect. So number one, let's go on. Um, Next one in there was, I don't like to stray too much into financial instruments, but we don't want everyone to be upset. So what about failed own use? So this is, um, what was it? It it says in IFRIC update, I think the physical settlement of contracts to buy and sell a (laughs) non-financial item, which is a bit of a mouthful. So so, so failed own use works better. (laughs) So it is not uncommon uh, in a number of industries, perhaps principally amongst utilities, for uh, entities to enter into a contract to deliver a physical quantity of a commodity or to buy a physical quantity of a commodity. And if that was the end of the story, then there would be the purchase of inventory or there would be revenue. Uh, However, Uh, If following the guidance in IS39 or now in IFRS9, the entity has a history of net settling, then um, it has to account for a derivative. So over the life of the contract, so before the commodity is either received or delivered, the entity has to account for a derivative which will be at fair value through profit or loss. The question is what, what do you do when physical settlement actually takes place? So assume the contract is not net settled, but it is physically settled and the entity will either receive or deliver um, a commodity. And the question the committee was asked is, uh, can the entity reverse the derivative? So there'll be a gain or a loss on the derivative when it's settled. Can the entity reverse the accounting on that derivative with the other side of that reversing entry going to either revenue or to inventory? Uh, And here the committee concluded that no, there are really two things that happen at settlement. There is the settlement of the derivative And there is the purchase or sale of a commodity. And both of those things have to be reflected in the accounting. So there is no basis to record the extra entry. The gain or loss on the derivative does not get reversed. It gets settled. And the remainder of the consideration is therefore either the purchase of inventory or revenue for the sale of the commodity. And so the agenda decision specifies that the additional entry is neither required nor permitted by the standards. It will also point out, or it has also pointed out, that IS1 does not specify the line item on which the gain or loss on the derivative gets recognised. Yeah, yeah, that's what was, you were answering my questions. I was going to say, what about where does the uh, derivative go? Done. Okay, good. So moving on from failed own use, again, a, a decision that I feel has been debated for a while now, I can't remember when it first came, was this interaction between IFRS 11 and the new leasing standard. Yeah. So, yeah, this, this has been around a while as well. So we first talked about this on the committee in September of last year. Uh, and as you say, it's a question about the intersection of leases and joint arrangements, but uh, I think the, the agenda decision is actually a little bit broader than that, although the focus is very much on the intersection of leases and joint operations. So think about a situation in which there is a joint operation. So two or more operators come together to jointly control an activity. Uh, there is no separate entity, so it's a joint operation in the context of IFRS 11. And because there is no separate entity... Let's assume that the joint operation itself can't contract with third parties. So one of the operators enters into a lease. The intention is that the 
the asset or the right of use asset from that lease will be used in the joint operation, but just one of the operators enters into a lease with a third party. The joint operating agreement then provides that the operator that has entered the lease will be reimbursed for its costs for entering the lease by the other operators who who will each pay their share. The question is, how does the operator that has entered the lease account for that lease contract? And here the committee has said that following the guidance in IFRS 11, one of the, all of the operators account for uh, the obligations for which, for which or their obligations and a share of obligations entered jointly. So if an entity has the primary responsibility for a particular obligation, it accounts for all of that obligation together with its share of jointly incurred obligations. So uh, the outcome in the situation that I described is the operator that goes off and signs the lease contract accounts for all of that lease contract. Debit right of use asset, credit lease obligation, and then there is a separate contract which entitles it to reimbursement. The agenda decision does not address the accounting for that second contract. The reason I say it's slightly broader than simply leases is that a similar logic would apply to any other liability of a joint operation, that the party that has the primary responsibility would account for that responsibility, and then an arrangement in which the costs are shared would be accounted for separately. But the agenda decision focuses on the per, the party that's obligated, not all the parties and all the accounting yeah. for everything. Yeah, so um, my own view, as I said at the meeting, is that there is a difference between an arrangement in which uh, one party takes on a liability and has a right to be reimbursed and an arrangement in which people parties collectively yeah. take on the responsibility. And that's what the agenda the decision says. Party with the primary responsibility accounts for that liability. Yeah. And then there is a separate piece of accounting um, for the right to be reimbursed. And how broad do you think the impact will be on this one? I imagine oil and gas is your sort of prime... Oil and gas is the principal industry. There may be some others in in which um, joint operations are are widely used, but I think the, the, the principal focus here will be oil and gas. Okay. Okay, thank you. Maybe last. So, do you remember? I can't remember how many years ago it was now, Tony. But do you remember IFRS eleven? There used to be like a hundred, hundred issues on the agenda yep. all at once. Now they're back. We like to talk about IFRS. Well, I, I think the um, one of the things that that we also talked about is that yeah, there there, there have been a lot of agenda decisions. Yeah. So four or five years ago, I think we issued eight or nine. Yeah, one big pack. Agenda decisions <laughs> on IFRS eleven. And one of the things that the committee will say is that it will recommend to the board that it adds this issue, so the the intersection of IFRS 11 with IFRS 16, to the forthcoming post-implementation review of IFRS 11. Perfect. And there's another couple, which or another one at least, that we won't have time to talk about today, I'm afraid. But the IFRIC update's got everything we need. Okay, probably last one we'll have time for an agenda decisions. Again, like I said, I tried to steer away from some of these tricky IFRS 9 ones was uh, curing a credit impairment. It feels like, you know, we're curing a disease. (laughs) What's happened? So this is the expected loss model in IFRS 9. And think about an asset that has become credit impaired. So it's moved on to stage three. So when an asset is credit impaired and it's in stage three, 
IFRS 9 is pretty clear that the finance income, the interest income, is calculated on the basis of the carrying value rather than the gross value okay. of the receivable. Yeah. And so that's what IFRS 9 requires. The question is, well, what happens if that credit impaired asset is no longer credit impaired or maybe it's settled in full? And maybe that's the easiest way of thinking about it. That, it's cured. That, yeah, it's cured. <laughs> Uh, the easiest way of thinking about it is the asset was credit impaired, it was written down, but the counterparty settled. So all of the expected cash flows were received. That means that the, the, the cash flows that, that, that are received will have included some uh, something that would have been finance cost, uh, finance income rather, had it not been credit impaired. Yeah. The question is where does the credit go? Does that become interest income or is it part of the reversal of an impairment? And the committee has confirmed in, in the agenda decision that that ought to be part of the reversal of the impairment. Uh, and the logic here is that IFRS 9 is clear that you don't rec recognise interest income on the gross amount yeah. of a credit impaired asset. You do it on the net amount after the credit impairment. So one way of looking at it, um, and this is probably not what the standard says, but it's one way of thinking about it, is that, well, there was some finance income, but it was immediately impaired. Yeah. IFRS 9 says you don't book those two entries. You simply yeah. book a number for, 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 for finance income on the credit impaired amount. Yeah. But because whatever it was was immediately impaired, then when the, uh, when the asset is cured, the credit is the reversal of an impairment. There we go. Mm -hmm. I now know about curing impairments. <laughs> I feel like I'm mm -hmm. an accounting superstar. Okay, so we're already spent 18 minutes, Tony, so probably we've only got time maybe to talk about one tentative agenda decision. I know there were four. Looking at the list, what about another IFRS 16 one? Subsurface rights. Yeah, what yeah. does that mean? <laughs> so a subsurface right, um, well, it's sort of as the name suggests, it's, uh, it's the right to something that sits under the ground. Okay. So the question that we had was which standard applies to um, a contract to for the space under the ground through which a pipeline might run. Okay. So let's say, for the sake of argument, an oil pipeline, it will run under the ground uh, and the entity that operates the pipeline will need to make a payment to the landowner for the right to run it through. So is that in IS 38 because it's an intangible asset or is it in IFRS 16 because it's a lease? And so the committee talked about it and issued a tentative decision in this case that says, well, there seems to be a... Um, an identified asset. Yeah. It seems to meet the, the other criteria in IFRS 16 to be a lease, and it seems to be a lease of a tangible asset. And so it. you can touch it, even though it's, it, it's almost like it's the space. Yeah. That, that, um, uh, I think that felt to the committee like it was a tangible asset, yeah. and therefore it ticks all the boxes to be accounted for in IFRS 16 rather than as an intangible asset in IS 38. Okay. And so that was that was the conclusion that was that was issued as a tentative decision. You have to have many qualities to be an IFRIT member, don't you? You have to understand all these different, you know, space underground. <laughs> <laughs> one day we'll get another agriculture one back and we can talk about plants. Okay, well, we have come to the end, I'm afraid, huh? Tony. I could get you talking for ages. Just before we go, if anyone's listened to some of those, or they've read the IFRIC update and thought, oh, they do affect me, or the tentative one affects me, what should they be doing? So... For the, the, the eight agenda decisions that are finalised, they're done. Uh, they are published, issued in IFRIC Update. And so 
uh, entities that think they might be affected should consider the information that is in the agenda decision in the context of their accounting policy, consider whether or not they need to make a voluntary change in policy to reflect the information in the agenda decision. Uh, and as we said before, they have sufficient, sufficient time, time to do that. <laughs> there were four tentative decisions. So those decisions will be open for comment for 60 days from the date on which IFRIC update was published. Uh, the ISB, like you said, the, the, the ISB staff said specifically in this meeting that they will no longer consider um, responses to tentative decisions that arrive after the 60-day window. Uh, but the the comments that are received during the 60-day window will be debated by the committee before the agenda decisions are finalised. Okay, so remember, everyone, not 60 days from this, when you listen to this podcast, nope. <laughs> look at the date of the IFRIC update. Okay, and if you have got, if you think it's controversial, get writing in. So thank you very much for joining us again, Tony. Pleasure. We've still got, I know we didn't cover everything. We'll have you back again, don't worry. And thank you everyone for listening. If you want the full IFRIC update, it's on the ISB's website. Um, I'm your host, Reef Pretty. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.